Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm Jamie Floyd, host of All Things Considered at WNYC. You're listening to Politics Brief, a collection of our very best coverage of the 2018 midterm elections. We'll share the sharpest and most timely talk, analysis, and original reporting from shows like The Takeaway, The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and Radio Lab Presents More Perfect. And from the WNYC Newsroom, which is watching key races in New York and New Jersey. Enjoy. This is The Takeaway with Amy Walter from WNYC and PRI Public Radio International in collaboration with WGBH Radio in Boston. The partisan divide in this country is growing. People see their partisanship as almost as part of their identity. That's Carol Doherty. He's director of political research at Pew Research Center. And he's been tracking this phenomenon. And, and that's not necessarily a positive thing. They don't necessarily have fondness for their own political party. It's more because of the negativity in politics and the negativity they feel towards the opposing party. How did we get to this place where our politics has become so polarized and partisan? We saw this trend start in the, in the mid-1990s, and it's been pronounced ever since. And it's to the point now where partisanship overwhelms other divisions in societies, demographic differences, gender, race, in, in terms of political values. In other words, the differences over political values are much greater by, along partisan lines than almost any other line that you, you can imagine. And so, you know, you see these greater divisions. And, and it's, you know, in our politics today, it's a binary choice. And so, you know, as we've seen, as you know, through most elections, 90% of Republicans vote Republican and 90% of Democrats vote Democrat. And that share has been increasing uh, each election. If we look back in history, where was a time when the percentage of people who would be willing to split their ticket to say vote for a Democrat in one election, vote for a Republican in another. What was sort of the heyday, and when did that start to decline? Certainly, uh, the political scientists say the ticket splitting has been uh, has been in decline for quite a while now. It's hard to know when the heyday was. But one of the m- metrics to use is the percentage of out-party people who have a favorable view of the president. In other words, if I'm a Republican did I approve of Barack Obama's job approval? And we've tracked that all the way back to the 1950s. And at that time, you had 49%, nearly half of Democrats, on average during Eisenhower's term, who was a Republican, saying they approved of of, uh, his job performance. And today, you have 7% of Democrats, on average since Trump was elected, uh, saying they approve of his job performance. This seven percent isn't unique to Trump. What Obama well, it's had the lowest, it's the lowest it's l- out party approval ever. But mm-hmm. the trend, you're right. The trend has been evident for the past several presidents, including Obama and Bush, and they really it, it really intensified during those two uh, presidencies. I know your specialty is looking at the trend for where we've been, but think about where we're headed. Given all the numbers that you've put in front of us, it sure seems unlikely for me to believe that we're going to see a rise in support for a candidate, either running for president on the Republican side or the Democratic side, who embraces this, I'm going to compromise and I'm going to take a moderate both temperament, tone and ideological positioning. 
it's always difficult to predict to do these sorts of things in politics. And, and you know, there's a, there's a belief out there, and I know I hear it all the time, that isn't the American public tired of this in the sense that they've seen this partisanship on one side and another for years and years and years. What isn't the natural kind of pushback to that to, to pick more moderate or candidates who compromise. But I- at this point, the, the sort of tit-for-tat trend in politics is also very powerful in the sense that, you know, you hear a lot of Democrats today during the Kavanaugh nomination. They remember what happened to Merrick Garland. They remember what happened to their nominees. And so then there's a desire then to try to block this nominee, and it goes on. And so, you know, while there is a fatigue, I think, out there, it's, it's very difficult to break this cycle. Carol Doherty, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I wanted to talk to someone who's really lived this. So I sat down with former Congressman John Tanner. Tanner represented a district in western Tennessee for 22 years. He described the founding of the Blue Dog Democrats back in 1995 after his party lost 52 seats in that midterm election. Some of the uh, members of the Democratic caucus were further to the left than we were comfortable with on budgetary matters, the national debt and so forth. And the Republicans were much further to the right on some of the social issues than we were comfortable with. And so we decided that we would try to form a caucus that expressed that sentiment. You put this together in the wake of Democrats' big defeat in the 1994 midterm elections. And so was it a reaction to losing control of Congress that year? Partially. And also, uh, when we started, uh, we had Republicans uh, meeting with us. And my recollection is that Speaker Gingrich and uh, I think at that time, Tom DeLay maybe was a whip, found out about it. And uh, I don't know what happened, but the Republicans quit coming to our our meetings. We were trying to form a centrist group to... uh, See if we could bridge the divide, uh, so to speak, uh, and try to get something done in the country. Do you still consider yourself to be a moderate? Well, I don't know. I, I try to. We admire moderation in most aspects of life. I mean, you can eat a steak one night a week. You eat a steak seven nights a week. You're that's not good. Moderation is is considered, and, and good manners is considered to be an asset in most places. But when we get to politics, somebody says they're moderate. Oh, that's squishy. They don't stand for anything. And no, they stand for good government and reasonable solutions to problems that the country faces instead of trying to jam it down a Democrat's throat and Democrats get it, jam it down a Republican's throat. That, to me, is is uh, not, not uh, particularly uh, appetizing. Were you treated that way when you were in Congress by your some people in your own party that he's kind of squishy, we can't really trust him, he's not a real Democrat? Oh, yeah, yeah. And yeah. how would that come out? How would that... What form would that take? We would, I would argue with and say, uh, actually, uh, some of the blue dogs are better Democrats than people. It's not it's not particularly hard to be a Democrat when you're in a D plus 30 uh, district. That's easy. When you're in an R plus 9 district and you're a D, that's a little tougher. Are you worried that the Democratic Party moves so far 
over to the left that they make it very hard for somebody that w- came from your part of the country or mm-hmm. that comes from your political background to be part of that caucus? If that happens, then I can foresee a third party emerging from the ruins of of both parties because if one accepts the premise that the far left and the far right are so uh, entrenched in their ideas and so convinced of the wisdom and virtue of their positions on everything, then there's a lot of people in the, between the 30-yard lines that will not be comfortable either place, and they'll look for somewhere to go. And so that's that's where the country, I think, will will go because we've always been able to, to change and adapt to differing circumstances as long as the one party or the other is has a place for moderates. I think you hold the two-party system, but when the moderates are uh, rhinos, they call them, Republicans, and they, they, they've been castigated and shoved out. And if the far left does the same thing with people, blue dog type people too, then I think you'll see a third party emerge. Could you support something like that? I wouldn't say I couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Congressman John Tanner served in the U.S. House from 1989 to 2011. I'd start walking your way, you'd start walking mine. We meet in the middle, meet that old Georgia fire. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be back after a quick break. Each election season, political memoirs abound, doorstops that sometimes divulge more than intended. No matter how diligently they present themselves in the most electable light, they always reveal themselves. Their insecurities, their fears, their ambitions. How to read a Politico on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. We end the hour with three political strategists, two Democrats and one Republican, who've worked or are still working with politicians who are willing to meet in the middle and compromise. First, I ask them all, what does it mean to be a moderate? Together, moderates generally want to work across the aisle to solve problems. That's Helen Milby, and she's the uh, founder of the New Deal, which is a state and local network of 160 elected officials around the country, pro-growth progressives, as well as the New Democrat Coalition PAC fundraiser. Republican John Murray, former deputy chief of staff to Republican Majority Leader Eric Cantor, gave us this definition. I think it's this notion of temperament and tone and the idea that you can disagree without being disagreeable. And certainly in today's hyperkinetic press coverage and uh, political infrastructure, that's become a very, very difficult thing to achieve. And we're also joined by Bruce Reed, co-founder of a bipartisan ideas firm called Civic, former chief of staff to Joe Biden and domestic policy advisor to Bill Clinton. And Bruce says... I agree with their general definition of it. I've never liked the term. I don't think it means anything, actually. I think a lot of the ideological labels are kind of out the window at the moment. We live in immoderate times. We have the most divisive, radical president we've ever had. And I think there's probably a lot of agreement in both parties that whatever moderate is, it's not that. 
when did that term become a dirty word? The term being a moderate or being in the middle or being willing to compromise. And I'm going to read something. This is from Elizabeth Warren, her speech that she gave last summer at Netroots Nation. And it's addressing topics that you know um, very well in your time in the Bill Clinton White House. And she said, apparently the path forward is to go back to locking up nonviolent drug offenders and ripping more holes in our economic safety net. The Democratic Party isn't going to go back to the days of welfare reform and the crime bill. We aren't the gate crashers of today's Democratic Party. We're not a wing of today's Democratic Party. We are the heart Heart and soul of the Democratic Party. So I want you to to react to that, because basically what she is saying is the stuff that was sort of the core essential DNA, I guess, of the Clinton administration or what their top achievements now are something to be ashamed of. And that in order for the Democratic Party to go forward, we have to sort of, she doesn't say this, but it seems like we got to purge that from Hmm. our party. Well, I don't think moderate is a dirty word. I think the Democratic Party should always aspire to be as big a tent as it can possibly be. Every movement has a healthy debate about what the priorities of progress should be, what the pace should be. How important is it to bring the country along with you? And I think that's a good debate to have. So you don't see it Uh, as like a repudiation of who the Democratic Party was and who it should be now? I I don't know. It's certainly not a fair description of of what the Clinton administration accomplished. Uh, John may disagree, but, you know, I think the Republican Party's done a pretty good job of becoming the party of closed minds, the over my dead body caucus. We're the party of yes, we can. We want to get things done. And if you're going to do that, you got to be open to a, a range of views. You got to deliver results. It's easy for them. They just want to stop government from working. We actually need to build a working majority, a governing majority to get things done and uh, expand our appeal, not narrow it. John, I'll let you jump in, but Helen, I want you to respond. To I, mean, this I completely as well. agree with that. It's about governing, it's about solving problems. Someone told me, you know, potholes don't have a party, you know, they just need to be fixed. And, uh, and I think people want a government that works for them. And I'm hoping that the Democrats will, you know, get more seats and, and become that party that leads, because I think that we agree on 85, 95% of everything that we do about a just and tolerant society, which is great, but we also have to solve problems and make sure there's a, a future with jobs and people have choices and opportunities. So when you saw one of your own New Democrat members, Joe Crowley, defeated in a primary by someone running to his left, what does that tell us about the state of the Democratic Party and their willingness within primaries to tolerate or to embrace members who fit into a more moderate mold? Well, I go back to the big tent moment that that Bruce uh, mentioned to me. That's critical. I think Joe Crowley kind of was country over party, to be honest, and country over his own seat. He decided that to invest some time outside of his district in order to help maybe get a majority that can then hopefully fight some of the Trump wackiness. (laughs) John, I want you to weigh in here because you worked for a member of Congress who was also in leadership, Republican leadership, Eric Cantor, who I think we could look at on a scale, ideological scale, we would say this is a pretty conservative Republican. And yet he was ousted in a primary from someone running to his right. There were conservative pundits and 
the talk radio community that said Eric Cantor needed to be booted from his seat because he was too moderate on immigration, because he was working on compromise on immigration. What did what did you learn about that? And what does that tell us about the prospect of ever getting bipartisan reform on some of these big issues? You know, on immigration, uh, I remember a day where we were, frankly, being protested on the right for being too soft and on the left for, you know, not doing enough. And there is no zero-sum game when you are working on a piece of legislation. You have to find a way to bring people together, whether it's your own conference or, or across the aisle. But the expectations game that talk radio uh, and some of the blog world at that time and, frankly, the, the new emergence of outside money to influence races, those all played a very, very significant role in limiting or certainly diminishing the ability of leadership and others in the party to find a, a solution uh, to move forward. And, and I remember as well uh, when we were in talks uh, with Vice President Biden the summer where we were dealing with the spending cut issue. And what I always appreciated about him was he would come to these meetings and say, let's not talk about all the things we don't agree on. Let's talk about the things that we do. And I think the that concept, that idea has gone a, a long, long way out of the political system and the policymaking process to the detriment of finding those outcomes. And so, you know, my hope would be that if uh, the Democrats uh, have the opportunity to, to lead the House, let's say, um, that their first act is not to take the impeachment vote to the floor, but to try to talk about ways to continue the strong economic growth and and low unemployment that we're seeing today. And perhaps some of that is around bipartisan ideas to do that. Bruce, I, I remember back in the Clinton era when a bill like NAFTA came to the floor and it actually got about 100 Democrats and 100 and something Republicans. Do you think that's at all possible anymore that you could actually pass a piece of legislation where the same number of Democrats and Republicans are supporting it? I, I think it's possible on some issues where there aren't clear ideological divisions. You know? But is that even true anymore? Like, had a, I, just, had... I just kind of feel like we now live in the zero-sum environment where back when you were at the White House, it was, how can we cobble together 218 votes? And it you could actually look over to the Republican side and say, okay, we can have some of these folks, we're going to lose some of our Dems, and this is how we get to 218. Now we're to a place where it's all about, how can I get 218 people from my own party? How does that change? Yeah, well, I guess I'll say two things on that. The first is, I do think that Holding Donald Trump accountable, holding his administration accountable is the number one job for Democrats if they take back the House and or the Senate. And I don't think the rule of law is an ideological issue. There's no point in winning back the House to simply try to do business with Donald Trump, who has in his first year and a half demonstrated he has absolutely no interest in doing business with our party and barely any interest in doing business with his. Now, the second point is I do think that in our political system in Washington, it only works if the president is willing to stick his neck out and lead the way. It's impossible to be 
uh, bipartisan if the president isn't willing to take that risk. Do you think Obama was willing to stick his neck out? Uh, he tried. I mean, I think both Clinton and Obama found that on economic issues, that anything that involved taxes, on health care, that there wasn't a single Republican vote to be had, no matter how how much an, an outstretched hand was offered. I have a lot of sympathy for John for having dealt with and survived the House Republican Caucus, which I think may, may be the beginning of all evil in, in our current political environment. John, <laughs> you're the beginning Ouch. of all evil. <laughs> yeah, How do you feel about you that? Know, I will say that certainly during our tenure, there was a genuine attempt for us to try to find some ways to work together. I, I remember the first meeting uh, when President Obama came to the Hill. We had it over in the Senate. It was uh, House and Senate leadership along with the president. And we talked about the stimulus bill. And Eric asked if we could bring ideas to the White House uh, for the subsequent meeting. And the president said yes. And we thought, uh, wow, that's a great start. Unfortunately, uh, subsequent to that, we were not able to find a way uh, to come together on some of the ideas that our conference was willing to support. But I guess what I would say is there are two sides to the coin of not working together. At the end of the day, we've been elected to get things done on behalf of the people that elected us. And the idea that we're not doing that or not even sort of finding a way to do it, uh, even if it's hard because it is, seems to be contrary to the point of even being elected in the first place. And for me, that's sort of a fundamental question is, you know, you, you go to Washington, the work is hard, you spend your time there away from your family, you invest a lot of your life in that. I would think you'd want to walk out of there with accomplishment and achievement. But, you know, there are times where it seems like that road is is not the one that, that both parties, uh, frankly, some days are on. My criticism was not aimed at either John Boehner or Eric Cantor, who tried. Uh, mine was at the caucus for giving them such a short leash and for running Congressman Cantor out of office for not being conservative enough. I mean, that's crazy. And so what do you see now, and Helen, I'll, I'll start with you, about the possibility that that same dynamic plays out on the Democratic side, you're already hearing about many Democrats saying they don't want Leader Pelosi or they won't vote for her if they win enough seats to get control of the House. So Pelosi, not a speaker. Is there a potential that Democrats go and do the same, which is they run their leaders out unless their leaders are doing exactly what they want them to do? It depends upon who wins these races around the country and, and what the caucus looks like when we get here for those votes. Um Many of the people I talk to on the Hill really do believe in this bigger tent um, that we can't, you know, kind of chase out the moderates and, and primary them to be more, like quote unquote, pure. But I don't yeah. really know what pure means, to be honest. I don't love that term either, like moderate, pure, liberal. Again, I just want our Democratic Party to move forward, to find these great ideas to break through the chaos and to make sure that we are doing the jobs. They are doing the job that they're paid to do. But the overall sense that the parties each have this litmus test on purity and ideological purity. How much of a worry do you have that Democrats are going to fall into this same problem? I definitely worry about it in every day. And I, again, worry about the money in politics, too, as, you know, John and, and Bruce also talked about, you know, the amount of money that's flowing in from the more extreme pieces of the party, mostly for single issues sometimes. I mean, that does not help 
the interest of, you know, these pragmatic, you know, solutions-oriented folks in the middle that sometimes don't have one issue that drives all others. Or So is this know, coming then from the outside? You and John seem to be saying the same thing, which is what is really stirring up these members isn't that it comes from where they sit personally in terms of how they might define themselves personally, but the incentive structure and the outside pressure from these dark money or other groups, these individuals, sort of make it difficult to be the person that they want to be. I think I agree with that. I also know that everyone says, oh, I like my congressperson, my congresswoman, but the rest of the party is broken or corrupt or whatever it is. So, you know, sometimes the member themselves are kind of safe within their own district, but the party itself gets a bad rap. But I, I mean, the amount of money that does flow in from these dark sources is is pretty brutal when you're trying to figure out how to save your own seat and to do some solutions when people are not calling you a good Democrat or calling you not pure enough, even though you are a great Democrat and you're there for the same reasons that they are, just maybe a few different policy ideas of how to get to some of those goals. And John, we've talked about this in the past, but if, if you had a secret vote within the Republican conference about giving DREAMers permanent status or getting an immigration reform bill, and it were a vote that, again, it would be... <laughs> A secret ballot. Nobody would know who voted on it. Would you agree that Republicans would pass something? Two things. And one, just to sort of riff off what Helen said, you know, part of the challenge, and you live this all the time, Amy, is the districts themselves. And we've sort of jointly negotiated, meeting Democrats and Republicans, our own pain cave on these districts by saying, now you're going to take all these people that are Democrats and we're going to take all the people that are Republican and we'll both be in great seats and won't that be awesome? And of course, the outcome of that is you only care about your primary and it's all about sort of who can be the most crazy train when they are running from the extreme. And then you bring in the outside money and the talk radio world and all the rest and you get this ecosystem that only supports and reinforces the most extreme behavior. And I would say social has now doubled down on that. I mean, extreme rhetoric and, and behavior. Um, to, on the immigration issue, from our perspective, and Eric said this all the time, particularly on the dreamer issue, we should not be punishing uh, children for the acts of their parents. And we should be a compassionate country that's trying to find the right way to both solve uh, the dreamers issue and then take on this bigger question of immigration. And, you know, I think that there was a strong support within the conference to try to find that path forward. Uh, but if you uh, talked about that as a rank and file member, certainly in Washington, you could be assured that when you got home, you'd have a riot at your front door uh, and the talk radio and social space uh, would be, you know, red hot uh, that you were soft on all these things and, you know, amnesty and the rest, which was not what the conversation was at all, nor what the policies were at all. So I think until we can get members on both sides to feel like they can have an honest policy conversation and not have that turn into a, uh, a riot in their front yard, it's going to be very hard. Bruce, I'm going to ask the last question to you, which is how optimistic are you about where we're going with our politics? I hear more and more from people that I talk to this frustration they have that neither party seems to get them. 
that they have to choose one extreme or the other extreme. There's nobody really talking to them in the middle. Are you optimistic that we're going to find that place for them? Or is this kind of where we're going to be for the foreseeable future, this sort of zero-sum game of politics where we just move further and further to our corners and find it harder and harder to meet in the middle? I'm long-term optimistic. I think the current state of our politics does not reflect the DNA of the American people. I think Washington and the political debate is far more divided than Americans are themselves. And I think if we were talking about how are states doing, how how are governors governing, it'd be a, different, a whole different story than what we've just discussed. You've got successful Republican governors in blue states. You have Democrats looking like they'll make inroads in some red and purple states. I'd say the biggest problem with Washington is that it's on a, you know, with uh, a, a few exceptions, a sort of 20-year losing streak of being able to work together across party lines, despite considerable efforts, particularly uh, by President Obama, to try to change the tone in Washington. And uh, the longer that goes on, the easier it is to get in a rut. The framers did not design the House of Representatives to be the check against factions. Um, it's the it's the cup uh, that boils over, and it's done an excellent job of that in recent years. But I think, you know, once we get we get past our current uh, nightmare that Americans have a right to expect a lot more from their elected leaders, and they'll keep throwing out the bums until they get it. It's easy to get depressed about the current state of political discourse and to assume that it's always going to be this way. But there are reasons to be optimistic. Political reforms like independent redistricting commissions can help. Making districts more competitive means politicians have to balance the needs of both sides, not just those on the blue or the red team. But reform only gets us so far. In the end, politics follows voters. If people who feel left out of the conversation stay on the sidelines, well, that's where their concerns will stay too. If we want our politicians to compromise, then we have to reward them for it by turning out and voting for them. And this November, you have the chance to do just that. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Walter, and this is The Takeaway. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org election.